You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Will you pray with me? Father, we, we're so grateful to be back together again uh, amidst the, the irregularity of our meeting. Uh, this is not the way that we normally would meet together, and yet we we see your kind hand, we see your graciousness to us in allowing us to be together. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would now speak to us through the perfect and powerful word of God, and that you would give us eyes to see what we have not seen before, that we would have ears to hear what we haven't heard before. And then I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would give us receptive hearts, that we would receive what you have for us this morning. As we were singing that last song, I, I couldn't help but think about Daniel, about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and think, in some sense, that last verse would be their theme song. Oh, Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose. These young men could have never imagined, God, how you would end up using them for your glory. And yet we have watched them, even in the first few chapters, walk in humble obedience as worshipers of God. So I pray, Holy Spirit, please challenge us, convict us, change us by the power of the word this morning. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Please take your copy of the scriptures and turn to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4 as we continue our way through this book. As I've been working through the book of Daniel again for this series, I've been struck often with the perfections of God. How comforting to be reminded that God never comes up with a plan that doesn't work. He never reaches the end of himself and throws up his hands in frustration. He's never caught by surprise. No, God is perfect in every way. He is infinitely wise, absolutely sovereign, perfectly righteous, and yet, as we will see this morning, God is also unfailingly gracious. Our text today, Daniel chapter 4, contains a hymn of praise at the beginning and at the end. And then in between these two hymns, there's a very strange dream and an even stranger story of King Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation. So, let's jump right in at verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So, if you've been with us for our series, this is... This is not an unfamiliar situation. 
but yet at this time, things are going well for Nebuchadnezzar. His kingdom has prospered, and he's surrounded by peace and beauty. This is a life of ease and enjoyment. Into Nebuchadnezzar's prosperity and tranquility, God brings a dream that frightens the king. And so he does what he's done in the past. And friends, I want you to notice what's painfully obvious right out of the gate. With all that Nebuchadnezzar has already experienced, he hasn't really learned anything. When the troubling dream comes, you would think Nebuchadnezzar would bypass all the supposed wise men in his kingdom, and he would just immediately call for Daniel. But that's not what he does. Look at verse 6. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream. Shocker but they could not make known to me its interpretation. Well, this shouldn't surprise us. The king has faced this before. In this, again, God exposes the futility of earthly wisdom, reminding all of us that true wisdom cannot be attained by even the best education in the world. Godly wisdom can only be given by a gracious and sovereign God. And the exercise of godly wisdom will always glorify the God who gives it, not the one who shares it. That's an interesting little point we see throughout this book. The exercise of godly wisdom will always glorify the God who gives it, not the one who shares it. Remember that God is working through Daniel. But through Daniel, God is glorifying himself. This is why when Nebuchadnezzar came to Daniel the first time and gave Daniel the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, what did the text say? If you flip back to chapter 1, verse 16, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel blessed the God of heaven because he was nothing more than a messenger. God deserved all the credit for what had happened. Now back in chapter 4, after the wise men come up empty again, Nebuchadnezzar calls for Daniel and tells him his dream. In Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he saw a tree which grew strong and tall, and it was fruitful and beautiful. Verses 11 and 12 provide a stunning picture of this tree. But the dream continued. And suddenly a heavenly being came down from heaven and makes a startling declaration. Look with me at verse 14. <clears throat> Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. 
The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Nebuchadnezzar pleads with Daniel for the interpretation, but Daniel is troubled, dismayed for a while, the text says. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar tries to comfort Daniel. And finally, Daniel reluctantly tells Nebuchadnezzar that the tree in the dream is him. Nebuchadnezzar is the one who will be cut down and judged. And most alarmingly, this dream is the decree of the Most High God. God's judgment of King Nebuchadnezzar would include a season, seven periods, the text says, symbolic of a completed time, appointed by God, where Nebuchadnezzar would, according to verse 25, be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. Though this may, to some of you, sound like cruel and unusual punishment, our text tells us why God is doing this. And at this point in our study, the reason shouldn't surprise us. Verse 25 again, that you should be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you. And then notice what it says. Till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. In verses 28 through 33, we find out that a year later, Nebuchadnezzar's dream is fulfilled. Look at verse 33. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. What a change. I mean, think about this. What a change from the descriptions of Nebuchadnezzar we encountered earlier in the same chapter. From relaxing in a palatial palace to grazing in damp and dirty fields as a wild animal. The righteous power of God set against the futile and fleeting power of an earthly king. Now friends, look with me at another unexpected twist in this already surprising story, verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? He would know. After Nebuchadnezzar repents and offers praise to God, God extends his amazing grace to this once pagan king. 
He restores his prosperity and reestablishes his power. Nebuchadnezzar shockingly responds to God's sovereign work in his life in verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Well, friends, what are we to learn from this somewhat bizarre story? Well, I believe there's a lot for us here, but let me organize several lessons we can learn around four key developments in this chapter. So as you take time at some point, I hope, to study this text in greater detail, and maybe these four key developments, all governed by a sovereign God, will help you walk through this unusual story more easily. So here's the first key development. Key development number one, God orchestrated an unexpected relationship. God orchestrated an unexpected relationship. In the first three chapters of Daniel, we, we've encountered different scenes from the life of Daniel and his friends while in captivity in Babylon during the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar. Chapter 4 now contains a final scene before King Belshazzar enters the story in chapter 5. Amidst this very strange account in chapter 4, I want to draw your attention to the relationship that now exists between the prophet of God and the Babylonian king. At the beginning of the book, Daniel was a very young man, forcibly separated from his family and brought into captivity. We need to remember that. In chapter 4, we're near the end of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, so of course Daniel is much older. We also know at this point that Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar have been through some pretty interesting and intense circumstances together. Throughout everything, Daniel has faithfully worshipped God. Well, Nebuchadnezzar has marveled at himself. We've seen that contrast. Nebuchadnezzar has been marveling at his own perceived power and glory. So even though these men share virtually nothing in common, one worships the true God, one worships himself. Even though these men share virtually nothing in common, notice the glimpse we get into their relationship at this point. In verses 8 and 9, the text tells us that Daniel has earned the trust of the king which means that God has worked in an undeniable way to give Daniel favor with the pagan king. He's been separated from his family. He's been taken from his home. He's in a hostile environment. He's serving under a pagan king. He's worshiping God faithfully, but he's also humbly interacting with this king. Look at verse 19. <clears throat> Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belshazzar, this is just such a great glimpse into their relationship. The king answered and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar answered and said, my lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. 
Friends, even though Nebuchadnezzar has ignored the word and works of God, even though he has destroyed Daniel's homeland and separated him from those he loves, in spite of all of this, Daniel responds compassionately to Nebuchadnezzar when he hears of God's impending judgment. In fact, the text tells us that Daniel would rather Daniel would rather God's judgment be directed towards someone other than Nebuchadnezzar. Let it be for your enemies, O king. Sinclair Ferguson wonders, Sinclair Ferguson wonders if this compassion is a direct result of Daniel's committed prayer life. Perhaps as he has faithfully prayed for King Nebuchadnezzar, God has softened Daniel's heart and given him a great desire to see the king repent rather than experience the wrath of God. I think there's an obvious lesson for us here, perhaps more than one. What did Jesus command all of us in the Sermon on the Mount? You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Brothers and sisters, to take this principle and make it personal, our society, and and sometimes the church is more guilty of this than anyone, we are quick to cry and clamor for sinful people to get what they deserve. Now, I'm not talking about dismissing legal structure or appropriate punishment for wrongdoing, but I'm challenging our posture, our posture that is far too often arrogantly angry and self-righteously vindictive. You see, contrary to the command of Jesus and contrary to what we see modeled by someone like Daniel, we forget that central to the gospel we claim to love is the reality that Jesus got what we deserve so that in him we might receive what we do not deserve. This is the beauty of grace. The innocent became guilty so the guilty could be declared innocent. Daniel reflects the heart of God here. He reflects the heart of God by finding no pleasure in the judgment of the wicked. I think Daniel's example is an invitation to all of us to examine our own hearts and see if we have so twisted the reality of our sin and God's grace that not not only do we neglect praying for our enemies, but the last thing we would ever want is for them to receive the same undeserved mercy that we have been freely given in Christ. The true worshiper of God prays for his enemies and grieves, grieves that anyone would have to experience the judgment of God, though it is perfectly righteous. Perhaps this would be especially good for all of us to remember in this election year. As we hear constant vitriol aimed at the political leaders of both parties, 
whatever side of the aisle you're on, you can easily get caught up in this unproductive wickedness. You see, friends, as followers of Jesus, you and I ought to have the maturity to speak honestly about what we believe, to engage meaningfully in the political process, but also to pray fervently for both our favorite politicians and those we consider our enemies. Well, this leads us to the second key development. God orchestrated an unexpected relationship. Now we see that God executed an unnecessary judgment. God executed an unnecessary judgment. Now, here's what I mean when I use the word unnecessary. I am not, please hear me, I am not questioning God or doubting his sovereign plan. What God does is always, in the ultimate sense, both necessary and perfect. I'm using the word unnecessary to emphasize something. I'm using the word unnecessary because Nebuchadnezzar is given an opportunity to repent. Since Daniel genuinely cares for his earthly king and doesn't want to see him suffer, notice verse 27. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Quite plainly, Daniel pleads with Nebuchadnezzar to repent of his sin and fall before the throne of God in hopes that God will extend mercy to him. So let me give you a a few quick observations under this point. First, notice, notice that Daniel is both compassionate and honest. There was a part of Daniel that didn't want to tell Nebuchadnezzar the dream. And yet he ends up boldly pleading with Nebuchadnezzar to break off his sin. This is a good reminder for us as we share the gospel with those who don't yet know Christ. We can be both compassionate and bold. That's possible. In fact, if we truly care for unbelievers, we must warn them, which means there has to be some kind of confrontation. We must urge them to turn from their sin and believe in Jesus Christ. But we do this with compassion hoping and praying that they will find forgiveness. Second, we see another clear contrast here between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. Nebuchadnezzar is urged to break off his iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. The Babylonian kingdom, like all earthly kingdoms, was ruled by sinners and was therefore marked by the abuse of power and the oppression of the weak. In fact, remember why Daniel is in the presence of this king to begin with. He was taken captive, removed from his home and forced into subjection. 
Friends, what marked the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar is the exact opposite. It's the exact opposite of what marks the kingdom of God. Anytime we see the failures of earthly rulers, it should make all of us as believers long even more for the coming of Christ the King. When everything broken will be made right. Third, this somewhat weird account of Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation is strangely a summary of what the whole Bible is about. Theologian Jim Hamilton suggests that the whole theme of the Bible can be summed up as follows, quote, God seeks to be glorified in salvation through judgment. He seeks to display his glory through both his saving and judging work, unquote. Brothers and sisters, this story is intended by God to do what the entire book of Daniel has done, magnify the majesty and power of God by revealing his glory and pointing us forward to Christ's sacrifice where he was punished for our sin so that we might be saved. Fourth, we find here an example of the tension we often feel between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. If God is absolutely sovereign, it does not follow that we are all robots. God is going to deal with Nebuchadnezzar's rebellion. But even so, Daniel pleads with Nebuchadnezzar to repent. There's an important word near the end of verse 27. Look at the text with me. It's the word, perhaps. Daniel understands that God is sovereign, but he also believes that Nebuchadnezzar is responsible to turn from his sin. And so he affirms both of these realities together. Verse 24. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the King. God said this is going to happen. There is certainty in Daniel's declaration of God's judgment, but that does not negate his pleading with Nebuchadnezzar to repent. And I think Daniel was under the impression that he could. Friends, we must hold these two realities together and leave the precise way in which they function to the infinite wisdom of Almighty God. In the meantime, call sinners to repentance. Pray that they will turn to Christ. Now, what drives us to pray for and call sinners to repentance is that God is absolutely sovereign, but he is also unfailingly gracious. We see this clearly in our third key development. God initiated an unrelenting pursuit. Look with me again at verse 31. God initiated an unrelenting pursuit. Midway through verse 31, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you 
and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. Seven periods of time shall pass over you. At first glance, this might seem like a very odd means of discipline. What is God doing? Why is he disciplining Nebuchadnezzar in this way? But remember, remember what Nebuchadnezzar's primary sin struggle has been. Look at verse 29. At the end of 12 months, talking about Nebuchadnezzar, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth. Until you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. In God's infinite wisdom, he takes a proud king and offers him a powerful reminder. I am God and you're not, Nebuchadnezzar. I am God and you're not. In fact, everything you see, everything you're boasting in, I have given to you and I can take it away. The same is true for all of us as well as all earthly rulers. What does God say? I rule over the kingdoms of men and give them to whomever I choose. We could spend a long time just unpacking the implications of that. While this is a stroke of divine discipline, this is not vindictive or petty. It's important that we understand this. In fact, this is an act of astonishing grace. Instead of allowing Nebuchadnezzar to continue in his blind arrogance, becoming more and more puffed up, God intervenes. He invades the life of this pagan king and does whatever it takes to bring him to repentance and faith. This is a glorious picture of how God relentlessly pursues sinners and captures their hearts by his conquering grace. This crazy story is actually an amazing picture of the gospel. If you have been born of the Spirit and are a child of God, then you ought to see yourself in this text. Without the interrupting and overcoming grace of God, no one would ever turn to God in repentance and faith. In your sin and rebellion, brothers and sisters, God pursued you and he did whatever he had to to bring you to the point where you abandoned your pride and you cried out in mercy. And ultimately you declared allegiance to God alone. So friends, be aware, be aware of God's judgment in this story but be freshly amazed by his grace. The one who refers to his own mighty power and the glory of his majesty in verse 30, now in verse 37, will listen to what he declares. 
Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. In one sense, this is the song of every redeemed sinner, isn't it? Listen to theologian Sean Lucas. He writes these words. I found this quote to sort of reorient my thinking and and amaze me again by what has actually happened in the text. These words, Lucas writes, weren't from Isaiah, David, Moses, or Jeremiah. These words were from a pagan king, one who thought he was the true king of the world. This is a pagan king who had slaughtered Israelites, leveled Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, made eunuchs of the descendants of David. This, this was the one who acknowledged, indeed, praised God as the true king. The only possible response to this account is to fall down and worship, right? Only God can do this. Only God has the power to totally transform someone in this way. So again, brothers and sisters, you should see your own gospel transformation in what has happened to Nebuchadnezzar. What God has done in your life is no less miraculous than what he did in Nebuchadnezzar's. God alone can do this, and in response, he alone deserves our unending worship. We see here that grace given and grace received is what fuels worship, which is precisely what Nebuchadnezzar now does. This is our fourth and final development. Key development number four, God grants an unequivocal declaration. God grants an unequivocal declaration. This is a result of God's grace. God has done this. Look with me at verse 34. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. Right? Mine can be taken away. His is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none, none, none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Do you know how you know when someone has had an authentic encounter with God? Everything they previously believed is turned on its head. Everything. You see, everything Nebuchadnezzar thought was true about himself and his kingdom, he now knows it's only true of God and his everlasting kingdom. It is impossible to think about what has happened to Nebuchadnezzar to consider his declaration of God's glory, majesty, and sovereign rule without making a beeline to Christ. Everything Nebuchadnezzar affirms 
ultimately hinges on the death and resurrection of Jesus. Right? Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus conquered sin and death. Jesus will reign eternally. And so we eagerly await the day when he returns and the kingdom of the world becomes the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Friends, as we bring our time to a close, I want to invite you to consider what your response to this text should be. Certainly, we should all be amazed by this display of God's power. We should be filled with humility and gratitude at God's kindness towards sinners. And if you're here this morning and you've never turned in faith to Christ, let this text be both a warning to you and an invitation But as Charles Spurgeon reminds us, we should also delight as we think deeply about this text. We should also delight in God's sovereign rule. I think this is a particularly helpful reminder for us right now. With all that is happening in our nation, we don't simply need to hear again that earthly power and earthly rulers are feeble and flawed. We can see that clearly every day. Now we need something to sustain us in uncertain times. So let me leave you with this. During his sermon on this very text, this is what Charles Spurgeon said to his congregation. I believe there is no doctrine which contains such a deep sea of delight as this, the Lord reigns. The Lord is king forever and ever. Then all is well. When you get away from God, you get away from peace. When the soul dives into him and feels that all is in him, it then feels a calm delight, a peace like a river, a joy unspeakable. Beloved, strive after that delight this morning and then go and express it in your songs of praise. Be sure to bless and magnify your God. Lift up your hearts in his praise. The Lord reigns.